There are a cornucopia of words to describe 2018, but the one that comes to mind for me is exhausting. This year was one of the most startling and revolutionary years in recent Missouri political history. And to break things down, Rachel Lipman and Joe Manis join me to count down our five most important stories in Missouri politics this year. So join us, will you, for the final Politically Speaking of this weird and wild 2018. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufu's Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufu's Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Merzenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is Rachel Lipman and colleague Joe Manis. If you're listening to this, it's December 31st, 2018, the end of uh, a, a uneventful year in Missouri politics. Yeah, is that fair to say? We have nothing well, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, a little sarcasm there. You <laughs> nah. know, just a, just a year that, you know, kind of changed the direction of the state's political universe probably forever, you know? Just nah, no, no, well, no big deal. No big deal. At least for a couple of years. No at least for deal. a couple of years. We, we collectively decided to do a fun little exercise, and we each submitted five stories in sequential order that we thought were the biggest of the year. Now, some of these are not going to surprise you, but others may be kind of a surprise. Um, But before we get to the top five, I do want to point out some that did not make the cut that we saw were important stories. Um, The first was medical marijuana passing in Missouri, which was one one of your selections, Joe. Yes, it was. It was my bottom of the fifth. But I really think that it's going to have a major, it's going to create a major new industry. I'm just finishing. I mean, by the time you listen to this, one of my latest stories on the topic will have run. But I think that um, it will create a major industry, which will begin to have influence in politics and other stuff over the next few years. Very lucrative industry that a lot of people can make a lot of money on. Rachel, you had the officers being charged for the kettle situation Mm -hmm. after the Stockley protest as one of your top stories, but it didn't make the cut. Why did you choose that? I chose that because of a couple of things. Number one, it is the first time that you've seen in St. Louis these officers indicted federally for things that have happened kind of on the job. There have been other officers indicted federally for things like uh, using records from a chiropractor or sharing accident records with chiropractors and getting kickbacks. And then there was the whole towing scandal back in 2008. But this is for something that was so visible. And also because there's this, you know, kind of impression that – and rightfully so, that if this hadn't been a cop, 
the officers would not have been charged because the behavior against this officer was really no different than it was against some of the protesters. And it also gives additional evidence and ammunition to these lawsuits that could cost the city of St. Louis a lot of money either to pay up settlements or to kind of reform their policing practices in the same way that Ferguson has had to. One of the things that I put down on my list that didn't make the cut was the passage of Amendment 1, which is known as Clean Missouri. We've talked about this kind of incessantly for well over a year. I'm not going to get into the the particulars because it's multifaceted and I get down a redistricting rabbit hole. I really don't want to to really discuss. I can't crawl out of. But uh, I do believe the passage of this. I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, I do believe the passage of Clean Missouri is going to have a major impact on legislative behavior and legislative re- state legislative redistricting for the future. So we'll start with the fifth story that we believed was the most important, and that was. Steve Stanger, St. Louis County Council feud. You know, it manifested itself with a very bitter and expensive primary campaign where Stanger narrowly won over Mark Montavani um, and then won comfortably over Republican Paul Barry. But now there's this council after Lisa Clancy was elected over Pat Dolan and Tim Fitch was elected to replace Colleen. The former county police chief. To replace Colleen Wasiger where... Going to 2019, you have a council that is diametrically opposed to Stanger. And this is really unprecedented territory, Joe. I think it could change. I think that it could end up that the council is not as united uh, against Stanger or against at least on some issues as what we've seen in 2018. Because I think that um, Clancy and Fitch, Fitch in particular, I think that they're each going to be looking at things with fresh eyes. Not that they're going to be siding with Stanger, but they may not necessarily side with Councilman Sam Page and or Vice Chair Hazel Irby. So I I think it's going to become more complicated. I want to play this clip now from Steve Stanger, who kind of gave this explanation of what's going on between the county executive's office and the council. I am elected not by the county council. I'm elected by the people of St. Louis County. And what I have done is done my very best to have an agenda that is for the people of St. Louis County. And that's an agenda. I mean, look at the things that I've talked about that we've accomplished despite the acrimony. And I would posit to you this. I think that anyone who occupies this office is going to have the same issues that I have had with the county council. Because if you have a true leader in this office... Sometimes you have to say no. And this is Councilman Sam Page, who you alluded to before, kind of the leader of this uh, antagonistic council, basically. And listeners need to be reminded, these are both Democrats. Both Democrats. Well, I think the definition of antagonist and ally are are, um, exaggerated on both ends. But I think it's um, fair to say that when the county executive was in office for the first year, at least, um, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I accepted what his staff brought to me and what he had to say as being reasonable. And um, when I uh, heard some things that I didn't like, I saw some things that I didn't like, um, saw some um, uh, activities that I didn't like, then I stepped back and asked questions and was met with confrontation. So really the the, uh, relationship that the county executive has with each council member, not just me, but there's seven council members in all, as one that he brought upon himself. Rachel, I know you primarily cover uh, St. Louis city government. We've talked about this before. St. Louis city always gets this bad reputation for being dysfunctional and raucous. 
I've talked with people, and they think that city politics is kind of tranquil by comparison what's going on in the county right now. I mean, nothing that the city did even came close to making our list. What do you make of this? I think a lot of what you see in the city is less kind of board of aldermen um, kind of feuding with the mayor in a sense. There's a lot of internal board of aldermen stuff that goes on. There's sort of a lot of different camps that jockey for position there to have a say at sort of the legislative level and at sort of a broader Democratic Party level. But it isn't the antagonism between the board of aldermen and the uh, the uh, mayor, as you see here with uh, the county councilman. And what has struck me is kind of, first of all, it sort of seemed to elevate pretty quickly. You know, uh, Councilman Page said he gave Stanger a chance and then he started, you know, raising questions because he saw some things that he he disagreed with. But again, I don't cover it nearly as much as, as you guys do, but it seems to just sort of all of a sudden it was Page and then there were a lot of other people who got on board. Yeah, and I mean, we've talked, Joe, about how powerful the county executive's office is over the years. But now after some charter amendments, he has significantly less budgetary authority than he did before November. He has a council that could basically reject any part of his agenda that they don't like. I mean, where does Steve Stanger go from here? Well, the county executive still has lots of power. And I would argue the county executive is by far the most powerful figure in this side of the state. For now. For Well, <laughs> no, but, okay, there's a, there's a couple things I want to point out here. One of the reasons that I think that the county council has, I mean, aside from the issue differences, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at the broader dynamics here. One of the reasons that the council has uh, been, <coughs> continued to be more powerful and antagonistic is that for the first time in my memory, I mean, I cannot, I was looking back. You had Sam Page who has been chairman two years in a row. That, that sounds minor. But the chairman of the council has a lot with setting the agenda. He and Hazel Irby, who is the vice chair, they're considering maybe going in for a third year. It used to be that the council always it uh, rotated at, among everyone in the party in power. Whoever had, whoever had the majority on the council, that party traded off the chairmanships. I think that that has, uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it's different, but it does allow the opposition, as far as the hierarchy and the way they deal things and, and Paige being the leader, that has been allowed to solidify because Paige has been able to stay in power so long. Will that continue in 2019? Or, and, and he has not said whether or not he's going to seek re-election in 2020, and he's garnered a lot of enemies, just as Stanger has. It's he just being a different group. In this case. And in particular, yes. organized labor, which will be kind of something to watch in yeah, 2020. Yeah, because organized labor in St. Louis County is a major player. So let's talk about number four, and we're staying in St. Louis County, and that is Wesley Bell's election over St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough. Uh, we've kind of gone back and forth with this. I don't think this was the biggest upset of the year. I think Carl and May being J.J. Cummel was a bigger upset for various uh, reasons. Maybe not as big of an impact, but as far as money and organization-wise, we'll, we'll, we're never going to solve this argument, no, Joe. No, I think it's – I think Bell, that was huge. But I think the impact – The margin. The, I think the margin made and, it. And, and the impact is clearly larger because even though I think state senators are important, being the prosecutor of the largest county in the state um, – 
is a pretty big deal. Rachel, yes. I, what do you think the broad impact of Wesley Bell getting elected is going to be going forward? Well, I think it's a prosecutor's office that is going to look very different. McCullough is, and if you were listening uh, on earlier in the month to St. Louis on the Air, he is an old-fashioned law and order prosecutor, and he comes off as an old-fashioned law and order prosecutor. I'm going to get the job done. I'm all about public safety. He says he'd pushed forward things like uh, drug courts, etc., but he wasn't necessarily an early adopter of those programs. So you have someone coming into office who will never seek the death penalty. He's already said that. Um, wants to make reforms to the cash bail system. This was a platform that he that Wesley Bell ran on. And are you going to see the same thing where the assistant prosecutors leave as well? And you see some of the the turmoil and confusion that you saw with uh, Kim Gardner when she was elected circuit attorney in 2016 in, in the city in of St. Louis. Show. Right. So in um. There is also now, for the first time, starting January 2nd, the presiding judges, so the top judge in St. Louis and St. Louis County, plus the prosecutors in St. Louis and St. Louis County, will all be African-American, and three of them are African-American women. So you have a justice system that is going to look quite a bit different. Yeah, and I want to have Bell speak for himself about the significance of his victory and use that to bring up a point I brought up a couple other times on the show. You know, I, and, and as I was kind of mentioning before, um, you know, I've been in this bubble with my staff and, and supporters where for the last six months or so we have been, we were determined and we, and, and our mind was made up that we were going to win this election. And, and so that was the approach that we took. And, um, and as our supporters started to build and the momentum started to uh, build it, it for us. It seemed inevitable, but you know now on the other side, looking at it with a little bit of perspective and a little bit of sleep, I, I do get it. I, I, I get it. I can see why um, it, it is a, uh, a surprising and, and, and a big upset. I think the reason why people were surprised about this outcome is even though I think Bell ran a very excellent campaign and got support from key groups that gave him the money and organization to knock off somebody like Bob McCullough. The fact of the matter is St. Louis County is still only a 25% African-American county. There's only been one other person, Charlie Dooley, who has been elected countywide. And for all intents and purposes, the quote-unquote white political establishment, which frankly is the trade unions and organized labor, backed him for a while. And then when they ditched him in 2014, Steve Stenger won well, by a huge margin. We're talking about Dooley there. Dooley. Right. So... Wesley Bell didn't have any of that. He basically cobbled together a completely new coalition, which includes a lot of white voters in the inner ring suburbs. A lot so places, of young progressives. A lot mm-hmm. of places like Richmond Heights, Maplewood, Olivet, all those places, and North St. Louis County, which is predominantly African-American. I mean, Joe, I think this is the rise of a new political voting block that um, is going to be a force for, for years to come. I think it depends on how he performs especially the first year. I think it has the makings of that because, I mean, I think you cannot um, over, under-exaggerate how big his victory was. It was 14 percentage yeah, points. Yeah, I mean, so which is huge. So it wasn't that Bob McCullough lost. Bob McCullough lost big, and Bob McCullough, for over two decades, was an institution in St. Louis County. For a long time, he was considered the most formidable uh, Democrat in the region. If not the state. Yes. And he had been encouraged uh, several times to run for Congress in the early 2000s. He decided not to because he liked his job. The point was, if Bob McCullough, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. 
Okay. If Bob McCullough, who is roughly my age, maybe, uh, if he had opted to retire instead of running for re-election in 2018, I'm not saying he should have. I'm just saying if he had, then I think both parties would have thrown in a lot of um, candidates. There were a lot of lawyers and stuff jumping in. I think it would have been more difficult for Bell to have emerged from that. Bell was able to basically uh, um, take advantage of a perfect situation where McCullough decided to run for re-election. McCullough, there's a, some voters in St. Louis County have been upset with him over his response in the Ferguson episode in 2014. And he, I mean, from everyone who was close to him, who I talked to, said that he wasn't realizing how strong of a campaign Bell was putting together and had put together until a few weeks before the primary. Yeah. And then by that time, it, because McCullough until then hadn't really run any TV ads, hadn't really done anything. Yeah, and unlike, so unlike Stanger, who carpet-bombed Mark Monavani for well over a year with negative ads, I really think McCullough ran a very flat-footed campaign that didn't really start to criticize Bell until it was too late, Rachel. And I think that was one of the reasons the margin was so large. And I think because it was also a very kind of non-traditional campaign. Bell didn't have a lot of TV spending. He didn't put a lot of traditional stuff out there. He was doing more of sort of the grassroots, <clears throat> excuse me, texting, phone banking, etc. And McCullough probably, you know... It's hard to move the Titanic. This is something that had worked for him for seven terms before. He'd never faced a serious challenge. In some years, he hadn't had any challenge. Yeah, I think there was maybe one year where he had a Republican challenger of the seven terms that he he looked for. And it was interesting. It was it was kind of a maturation of those individuals who you saw in the streets a lot in Ferguson, kind of figuring out a way to turn their activism into, you know, really get a political movement going. Which was ironic because Wesley Bell was not the favorite of mm-hmm. activists when he ran for Ferguson City Councilman. And he had some detractors based off his experience in municipal governance mm-hmm. yeah. because he was a municipal judge and a municipal prosecutor. We'll be following his transition into office okay. for sure. One, one key thing I, I want to say, I think that Bell also has shown a some sense of sense awareness, self-awareness of what needs to be done politically. I think it was extremely shrewd for him to um, get Mike Wolf, who's uh, the dean of the law school at SLU, former U.S. state Supreme Court justice, uh, icon within the Democratic Party, to help lead his transition team. The fact that during the Biden event uh, that former the former vice president had uh, in North County just about a week before the election, it was for Claire McCaskill and all these people, Wesley Bell gave, I thought, one of the strong, the strongest speech of the Democrats that were there. And he made a strong pitch for her, telling people they needed to vote for her. The reason this is important is that because for years she has been close to McCullough. Now, she didn't get involved in the primary. But my point being is that Bell appears to have a sense of how to play politics to, to not only help his case, but to look at what the broader landscape is. And I think in some ways he's shown more uh, maturity and sophistication in that regard than uh, Circuit Attorney Kim Gartner has shown, and that may help him a lot in the next year or two. So let's get to number three, which was the repeal of right to work, which bars unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues. 
I think I put this as number three. I think most of us put this around number three or yeah. number two, basically, because in any, something similar to this. I yeah. Think. <laughs> if in any other political year, I think this would have been the number one story, because in my opinion, the repeal of right to work has changed the conversation in Missouri politics from the inevitability of passing legislation under a Republican governor that curbs organized labor to basically being very skittish about it for various reasons. Because Let, organized labor has shown that when they are back against the wall, they can get a huge majority to come out and back them up well, at I mean, the polls. I mean, this is example A. This is Governor Mike Parson in my interview with him where I asked him if he would sign right to work if it came to his desk. Well, you know, I, I think one the answer to that, Jason, I've always been supportive of right to work, so I want to be clear to that. And But I'm also understanding the voters you know, it got a thumping at the ballot box. That's the only way you can say it. You know, it got beat bad. So, you know, the voters, so you got to keep that in mind. But, you know, what that legislation would look like would all depend on whether you signed it, whether you didn't, what what those parts are in there. You know, there's other options out there. Other states have went to other ways of doing it. You know, so I think, first of all, you got to look and see what is that. But it's a tough answer for me to be able to tell you today, if it come to my desk in some form or another, would I sign it? You know, I don't know about that. You know, it's, it's got to make sure it's the right thing for what we're trying to do. Let me just put this in perspective. If you would have asked the same question to Eric Greitens in 2017, he would have said yes. And that would have ended. The, that would have answered the question. Or if it would have been Governor Kinder or Governor Bruner. Our Governor Hannaway, it would have been yes. Governor Parson before August. Yeah, our, yeah, our right. Governor Parson before August. So there has been legislation that has been put forward by Senator Eric Burleson, a Republican from Greene County, to try to reinstate right to work. Um, but in even in Democrats' view, this is Senate Minority Leader Gina Walsh. She belonged to a labor union for many years. I think she's the president of the Building Trades yes. uh, Association. Yes, she is. Um, she really doesn't think that right to work is a threat anymore, and this is her rationale. The governor said his focus is on jobs and infrastructure. And I don't think that what you see up there on my wall, I don't think you'll see it back for a while. I could be wrong. Now, will you see a bill? Will you see it get a hearing? Will you see it get to the floor? Maybe. But after the constituency has decided two to one, I wouldn't want to venture down that path of, trying to push it through again if I was in the seat to do so. Well, I certainly wouldn't. I never would. I think that the issue is resolved, but I would be surprised to see that come back. I think what she's talking about is, again, what you alluded to this earlier, Joe, when organized labor is motivated and has a singular goal and purpose, I think they can be a powerful force in Missouri. One of the reoccurring things I've talked about since Greitens was elected, though, is there's lots of anecdotal evidence nothing that I can like point to on a chart or anything, that labor members can be kind of unreliable. I mean, there's anecdotes that they voted for Greitens with 30 or 40 percent of the vote. It really should have been like 10 percent. And they voted for Trump with like 50 percent of the vote. And they voted for all these legislators that voted for right to well, work. Well, I mean, look likely. what happened in November. Claire McCaskill, the Democratic um, uh, U.S. senator who will come up later, the fact is she lost by almost six percentage points statewide. She got creamed in rural areas. If you look at the right to anti-right-to-work vote in August, if she, and she had emphasized that she agreed with them. She was against right-to-work. Uh, Josh Hawley, the Republican, supported right-to-work, although he kind of played it down. And for whatever reason, McCaskill didn't 
hammer him on that, which personally I think from a strategic standpoint she probably should have. My point being is that labor was able to really show its muscle, but the muscle did not transfer to people who agreed with them. Well, and it was sort of, too, this interesting trend that you saw, especially in November, of the state voting for policies that are progressive, quote unquote, however you want to call it, and then voting for candidates that don't support it. There is a complete disconnect in this state between the policies that you support and the candidates that you support. I was hearing um, a story from NPR this morning on how partisanship has become almost like tribalism and part of your identity. And I'm just trying to figure out how you get those two things to connect. Yeah, I think voters in Missouri are just swayed by compelling television ads. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to be I'm trying to be I am a little cynical, but a lot of those aforementioned proposals had really effective messaging. And sometimes when people see that and there's not a strong oppositionary argument that is being put in front of them on their television, it, it ends up just winning or losing by default, basically, but, with some exceptions like the transportation tax. But continue. But Joe. it does mystify me. Uh, I mean, and I'm, a, I'm not taking sides on this, but. Go back to 2006 when McCaskill ran the first time for the U.S. Senate against Republican incumbent Jim Talent. Their contest got enmeshed in the in the statewide debate over uh, a, a constitutional amendment, which barely passed, to protect embryonic stem cell research in the state. They got embroiled in it. Her victory margin was almost identical to the victory margin of the backers of embryonic stem cell research. It became that those two campaigns almost, although they were technically separate, they were braided together. My point being is is that these issues that we're talking about, uh, like right to work in particular, which, I mean, uh, the, uh, the movement to repeal it got a huge margin statewide, but then two months later... Um, McCaskill lost um, by almost six percentage points. Well, that's number two. Um, that was uh, Claire McCaskill segue, losing to Josh Hawley. J- Rachel and I both had this at number two. Joe, you actually had this at number one. Yes. I want you to explain yourself. Why do you think this was a bigger story <laughs> than the, what we're going to talk about next? Which, okay. if you've been paying attention, you because, can probably guess. Because, okay, let's, okay, devil's advocate here. How many people even think about uh, the impact of Greitens' departure uh, on from June on. Hardly anybody. Why? Because Parson came in, has qu- uh, the lieutenant governor, has made the governor's office quickly his own, has pushed his own initiatives. It's, like, it's almost like Greitens never happened. In the U.S. Senate race, Missouri's U.S. Senate race played a crucial role in determining that Republicans not only will continue to hold the U.S. Senate, but actually expand their margin in the U.S. Senate because it was one of three, I mean, four uh, Democratic losses for U.S. Senate from Democratic incumbents nationwide. So my point is, is that I think on a national scale, I think that it will have a lot of impact because it did increase the GOP majority. It also makes like Hawley is one of the youngest senators in forever uh, to be in the U.S. Senate. He just he, He's not the first person born in 1980, unfortunately. I know. He missed it by one day. <laughs> but what I'm, I'm going to be making jokes about this for, for, for many years, Joe, but he, continue. He is a strong conservative. He's extremely conservative on many issues. He's very eloquent about his views. Um, he the Republican leaders who really helped push him across the finish line because not only 
I mean, his victory is a test case for around the country because Claire McCaskill raised almost four times as much as he did. She raised just under $40 million, which is an unheard of sum in Missouri. He raised under 12, yet because of outside money helping him, many of it from Republican Senate leaders and their allies, he was able to still defeat her by a pretty decent margin. So I think his contest will be studied by Republicans all over the country, and I think he is on a position to be a very major force in the U.S. Senate. That's why I think it's number one. I think there's another reason this story is important from a, a, a raw political perspective. The rural parts of the state just went crazy for Josh Hawley. So much so, as we talked about before, that even though McCaskill had a huge margin of victory in St. Louis, Kansas City, and St. Louis County, she just could not overcome the margins in outstate Missouri. And she actually talked about this in your interview uh, that aired uh, earlier this month. In Missouri, there are still a huge swath of voters that don't vote on political party. Um, And Trump is uh, a different cat when it comes to uh, the, the loyalty that people feel to him because they really feel like they're giving the finger to the government with Trump. Um, they really, there's some, there's some frustration and anger at the government. People have worked really hard um, and they're not gonna do better than their parents and they can't afford to retire. Their wages haven't really grown. Um, for a lot of working class voters in this country, and Missouri is no exception. Trump was very attractive because it felt like he got it. Felt like, hey, we're getting screwed here, and nobody is is saying it the way it needs to be said. Joe, I don't want to play be super absolute, but looking at the numbers, I don't see a path forward for a Missouri Democrat to win statewide unless they they start doing better in rural Missouri than they they've done over the last two cycles. I think they will lose every statewide election if they continue on this path, unless Trump's popularity wanes there and they also do better in some of the exurban areas. I know that's an extreme, hard and fast opinion, but what do you think? Well, I think in in some ways she's right. When Trump is not on the ballot, things may change a bit. But it's just like what we've been talking about for most of the show. You have people who vote on policies, but then they're still voting for the people who oppose those policies that they supported. And that was very pronounced in rural Missouri. By the time you're listening to this, I should have had a story that showed some of the maps that really show it in the congressional areas. And the point is, is that southeast Missouri in particular, which was Democratic uh, up until less than 20 years ago, it's it's so red now. It's more redder than Southwest Missouri with Springfield which and is, Branson, which is just which is just incredible. <laughs> and and so my point being is that I think in some ways, Jason, you're correct, but I think it may have less to do with Trump than with the dynamics. And I could go on forever. And, but I will just that, say, I will I just say though, even though I think yeah, and I think that Holly Holly's victory is a map for for Republicans, but I do think it ha- there are some weaknesses there. I do not think that, especially if those margins in rural Missouri go down and Democrats start doing better in the suburbs, I don't think Republicans can afford to lose by 116,000 votes in St. Louis County again, especially if start, things start to change. That's why uh, Congresswoman Ann Wagner is pushing the suburban um, initiative, because frankly, her district 
Second district, warning bells. Um, I mean, she barely won re-election. Now, granted, there were other factors in there, but if you look just at the numbers, you look at, I mean, the shift, that changes. Now, I want to say one other thing. Rural Missouri, like many parts of the rural Midwest, and I've been pounding on this for 30 years, has been suffering from all of these losses of these rural factories, rural manufacturing that really began in the 1980s. But the result is is that now it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to make a living. It's really for young people to stay there. They're moving on. And I think that um, the challenges going forward are going to be how to deal with that. And Trump's throwing out a lot of promises. And if he doesn't deliver in, you know, by 2020 or soon, I think that will be devastating. But I'm not sure those people will vote Democratic. They may just not vote at all. All right. Let's get to number one. Rachel and I had this at number one. Joe had this at number two. And that is the demise of, of Governor Eric Greitens. Joe, I understand your point, but I think that this was the biggest political story of the entire decade. I, you, I, you will not sway me from that argument. I'm not going to go with decade, but I'm certainly going to go with what, what other story in the 2010s was bigger than this one? Like, seriously, like what other development where a governor resigned under this just incredible circumstances even comes close? Well, but, but, but my point is the reason I counted it as number two is because of the um, – what really happened? I mean, forgetting all the, the, the salacious stuff, the bottom line is Parson picked up, carried on, and it's almost like Brighton's okay. tenure never happened. Okay, but as far as the impact on state government and politics, I think it's immense. First of all, you had the demise of somebody who people were saying was a presidential or vice presidential candidate. He was saying that. Well, he was saying that, but others were too. You also had somebody who had the opportunity to basically be the most impactful Republican governor in history and yes, blew it yes, for various absolutely. reasons. Absolutely. And then you had the basically ascension of Mike Parson, who has now appointed three statewide office holders, which is unprecedented. I don't think there's ever been a governor who's done that before. The point is, is that Missouri is now seeing where you look at all the statewide officials, <laughs> only one, Jay Ashcroft, Really was initially elected in yeah. it. Everybody until else the was uh, until Nicole Galloway. Uh, until in. Nicole yeah, Galloway. Yeah, but, but Galloway was initially appointed. Right, but she won an election outright in yes. her own terms in November. Uh, yes. I put it number one because obviously it was insanity of four and a half months. <laughs> it wasn't just that he resigned; it was everything else that led up to the resignation. But this is also a story that. I think the fact that Parsons slid in and was able to do what people Greitens, what Greitens was expected to do is in some ways more important. He became yes, yes. what Greitens thought, what people thought Greitens would be was, you know, a clear sailing for Republican priorities. And also it's still going to be going on. You have lawsuits after lawsuits after lawsuits around a lot of this. Uh, the actions of Kim Gardner are now going to be investigated by a special prosecutor. And you have a conversation no, just... now happening about about dark money and how that's financed and this issue being pushed. I, I do want to p- ha- play a clip from uh, Governor Parson about what he was thinking. This was actually the first question I asked him in the interview. Yeah, you, you know what? Uh, during that whole period of time, you know, it, it was tough. It was tough being, you know, being the lieutenant governor. We're seeing everything that was happening in the state. And, you know, just 
uh, you know, heartfelt because our state was going down a path that most of us didn't want to go down uh, for multiple reasons. But, you know, just to sit there, but but the one thing I always focused on, I said, you know, I don't know what will happen, you know. M- most of the time you don't ever think as lieutenant governor you're really going to step into that seat as governor. But, you know, the reality of it was you had to start thinking, okay, what what do I, what do I need to be doing right now to prepare myself for that day t- if it does come? And I think uh, I really stayed focused on that and think, okay, if I am called to duty, if I am called to be the governor of state, what am I going to do, and how do I conduct myself now? But I, I think the lesson from Greitens, I mean, although Rachel put out some really good stuff right here, the lesson is also is that if you run for office, talking about how you're the big cheese and you hate all other politicians, regardless of party, and you're going to come in and throw everybody out, which is what he was doing. Remember he had that one rally in the Capitol where they were running around the Capitol putting uh, posters on people's doors? Well, they put eviction notices on people's doors. Well, well, the the point <laughs> was eviction notices. Yeah, the point was was that once he got in, his fellow Republicans. I mean, within a week, you know, he was at odds with different people, including uh, the Senate leader. And the point is, is that he didn't have any people supporting him as far as in power when. The you know what hit the fan. Well, I want to play a clip now from former Missouri Democratic Party chairman Stephen Weber that will kind of be a final thought before we uh, let this year go into the ash heap of history. Oblivion. Yeah, I mean, I think I was stunned. Um, I, I it had become clear to me over the last couple of years that he didn't have any sort of moral core and that he would just say or do anything. Um, but I guess I still thought that was more at a political level than at a human level. And to have all those revelations come out and, and everything that, that he was doing, he, he was defining he's a real predator. Um, yeah, it was it was I've been disappointed with him in a long for a long time, but I was still stunned and shocked and sickened by it. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I hope uh, that I don't know if I'm optimistic or not, but I do hope that um, people take a lesson from that and, um, you know, spend some time getting to know people before we make him governor of the state of Missouri or something like that. So, Joe, do you think that people will be more discerning about who they elect to the governorship or the U.S. Senate or anything like that? Or are we just going to see another Eric Greitens come along in four or eight years? Well, people are always looking for somebody to inspire them. I mean, Weber was talking about I – mean, because Weber knew Greitens, and in fact, Greitens used to be – was toying with being a Democrat a few years ago, and that's when Weber met him. So I think that when you got people who can ele- electrify crowds, who are telling them what they want to hear – I mean, people say, oh, we're going to be more careful. But I don't know because, I mean, McCaskill tried to use the same theme against Holly, and it didn't work. And um, even though until he was elected – Attorney General two years ago, nobody knew him either, and um, and for most of that two year stint, he was running for the U.S. Senate. So I'm not sure that either. And Democrats are now trying to look for somebody equally energizing to run for president. So I'm not sure if this whole thing about well, we really need to know them better. Where frankly, I think that's really a good idea. In practice, I don't know if it's going to happen. 
Rachel. I agree. We do need to know them better. The coverage needs to be more on issues. The focus needs to be more on issues. But that's not where most people are going to get the news is that is our politically speaking podcast is the issue coverage that we do. They're seeing the ads. They're catching, you know, the drive by snippets on on the news kind of thing. It's it's not our it's not set up right now. Our political system, the way people consume news, is not set up right now to be able to think about it, to go deeper, to consider issues. It is, like Joe said, on personality, on who can inspire them, on who has the best production and who can fling the most mud. Yeah. And I've made this point for a while after uh, John Deal resigned in disgrace as as well. As the state house speaker. And he was from here. And he was from here. I think that it's very difficult for voters to peer into the souls of people that are running for state-level offices when they don't really pay a lot of attention to them anyways, comparatively to federal politics. And people are not going door-to-door saying, hey, I'm a big adulterer or I'm committing crimes. And you know, no one's being that transparent about themselves. So I, I think that it really is up to to voters to try to do a little bit more research into that. But I also think that I guess the point that I'm trying to make is I do agree with Stephen Weber that I do think voters need to be more discerning about who they, they vote for. I'm just unfortunately skeptical that we can prevent people who are already kind of flawed individuals from being elected. Well, because it has to, the whole thing comes down to character matters. In some ways, character actually may matter more than issues because how they are, how they are will affect how they promote things, what issues they push, how they deal with stuff. But I think that you're right. It's harder to determine somebody's character when you've got all this stuff coming in on both sides trying to give you a public image, and there's the public image versus the private image, and I don't know if... Even in this age of social media and stuff, if it's going to make it easier or harder for voters to figure that out. Well, that's it. We're done for the year. But we will be back next year, which is tomorrow or a couple days after that, with more Politically Speaking. Uh, Jay Rosenbaum is where you can find me on Twitter. Follow all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And, follow- and, I've, and I've loved doing this show. It's been about seven years since we've had guests. Isn't uh, that right? I think uh, about five. Okay. But, you know, who's counting? Who, what's, what's two or years? We did. <laughs> but, Rachel, where can people follow you on Twitter? At R. Lipman, two P's, two N's, and I've enjoyed wonking out with everyone. Mm-hmm.